0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. My name is Jamin. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And before we turn our attention to Matthew 6, I want to inform you of a few things, kind of announce a few things to you. One of those, uh, both of them are very important to the life of our church. One of them uh, is related to uh, the godly man standing next to me. Uh, I'll get there in just a second. The first is our church, Citizens Church, has joined a church planting network called Acts 29. Acts 29 is, yeah, I didn't expect that. Praise God for that. Um, in, in really, Acts 29 is a network that helps churches plant churches, and we want to be a part of that. We, as Citizens Church, are the product of a, of a church planting church. And so that's our heart because that's our DNA. And so joining Acts 29 uh, helps us do that. And so that's in the plans. We have, if you don't know what Acts 29 is, we have some uh, brochures that are uh, in our connection area, maybe even right outside our door. We'd love for you to get one of those. This is Jonathan Gow. Do you know Jonathan? Yeah. All right. Uh, I am presenting this morning, Jonathan to you as a deacon candidate. He would be a deacon of city engagement. Jonathan is a, a man uh, who loves our church. He's been with us from the very beginning, from, from soft launch meetings at the Hope Center seven and a half years ago, or maybe even before that. He's, he loves our church. He's been with us from the beginning. Uh, and then also he loves our city. Uh, he He serves our city. He knows the needs of our city. He knows the needs of Plano and of Collin County. And so just in getting to know more about Jonathan and his story and the way that he serves, what we realized as elders was not only uh, could this man help us love our city well, but he could also lead us in loving our city well. And so that's what we're hopeful for. That's what we're praying for. And we're presenting him to you as part of our uh, kind of our commitments and our procedures for a 21-day period of review. Uh, we believe with our whole hearts that this man is qualified to serve this church as a deacon, uh, but one of the qualifications is that he's well thought of by outsiders. And so if there's anything that that you know, mostly just want to invite your affirmation. If there is anything you know that would maybe keep him from serving in that role, would you let us know? But mostly just want you to see him and to, and to hear from uh, the voice of the elders of this church that, uh, that Jonathan, we love you. You are a godly man. Thank you for the ways that you serve. We can't wait uh, for you to for you partner with us in loving and leading uh, in our city. So I'm gonna pray for him and then we'll get going. Father, I thank you for my brother. I thank you for his life. I thank you that truly to spend time with him uh, is to learn more about you. And to be in his presence is to be around someone who has put in, as we'll even talk about this morning, God, who has put in the righteous work to develop godly character so that to be with him is to be close to your heart, God. So we love you and we thank you. I pray, God, that you would just continue tethering our hearts together, that he would come on in a leadership role here, Lord, to serve our church in a way that helps us become a brighter light in a dark world. We love you. Amen. Would you thank Jonathan this morning? Thank you. We are in a new chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a big deal. We've been in chapter five for uh, nine months now. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to, I wasn't even trying to be funny, but, but okay. Um, we are going to be in, in verses one through 18 of chapter six for, uh, for about the next three to four weeks. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to start, we're not going to go all 18 verses like, uh, like what was read this morning. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to just kind of frame up our time together. If you are Uh, a note-taking type, or if you are someone who just really loves to know where we're going before we start headed there, let me just give you my sentence. It's two sentences, which is why it took us nine months to get to chapter six. Okay. Uh, You cannot become like Jesus without spending time with God. And you will not spend time with God unless you've made time for God. You cannot become like Jesus, which is the which is the, the, the dream of the Christian life, the goal of formation is to become like Christ. And you cannot become like Jesus without spending time with God. And you will not spend time with God unless you've made time for God. There's a fairly uh, popular book on Christian ministry that came out in 2010. At least it's, it's popular among pastors and Christian leaders. Uh, the book is called The Trellis and the Vine. Anyone familiar with that book? Um, it's written by two pastors, by two Christian leaders, and, and the entire book is about the, the metaphor that is the title of the book, the trellis and the vine. Uh, a vine is a vine, we know that. A trellis is a, a structure that's used in landscaping. If you were to ask Alexa, hey, Alexa, what is a trellis? Here's what she would say. She would say, a framework of light wooden or metal bars chiefly used as a support for fruit trees or climbing plants. That's a trellis. A vine is a vine, but there's a relationship between the the trellis and the vine. And here's that relationship. Uh, uh, The trellis shapes and directs how and where the vine grows. It's a support system for the vine, right? So if you see a house uh, and there's this beautiful vine growing up the side of it, and if that vine is uh, clean and neat and it looks directed and intentional, more than likely behind all that vine is a trellis that is a framework of light wooden or metal bars that has shaped and directed the way that the vine is gonna grow up the side of that house, right? So the vine grows, but the trellis controls and directs the growth of the vine. That's the relationship. Without the trellis, the vine still grows, but it usually doesn't get off the ground. Or if it does, there's no order to it. It goes whatever direction it wants. Okay, that's the metaphor. And these pastors writing to other pastors and leaders write a book called The Trellis and the Vine to communicate a really important truth about churches. And here's that truth, that churches contain both kinds of work, Every church has trellis work that it does. And every church has vine work that it's hoping that God does. The vine is the organic. The vine is the movement of God. The vine are the kinds of things that we're begging God to do that only God can do. And then the trellis is the structure. It's the organization. It's the way that the church has, has, has framed things, right? So one example of our church's trellis, if you will, is we have a service every Sunday at 9 a.m. And we have another service every Sunday at 1115. That's part of our rhythm. That's part of our flow. That's part of the framework of our church. Now, we can't control what God does. I need you to know that. Uh, just gathering together is meaningless unless God meets us and we worship him. So God is the one who gives the growth. It, it, you get real self-sufficient and God forgetting when you think that the trellis is what gives the growth. That's how a church starts to try and do the work of God without the spirit of God. And we have no desire to go where God is not present. Amen? Amen. But the point of the book and the point the book makes is that both are needed in the life of a church. Trellis work and vine work. Trellis being the structure, the rhythm, the habit, the organization. And what all of that structure is doing is it exists to be reminded of and to wait on and to commune with the presence of God. Okay, I want to lean into that metaphor this morning so that we see something together that we cannot miss. What is true for vines and what is true for churches is also true for you as an individual. There is vine and there is trellis in your life right now. There is something organic about your life. I don't just mean that you shop at Sprouts. I mean, there is growth, there is movement, there's change, there's formation happening in your life. And then there is trellis in your life. There is a framework. There are decisions that you have made about how you spend your time and how you spend your day that direct where your life is growing and how your life is going, right? The the way that you spend your time, your habits, whether they're known or unknown, what you fill your days with, everything from the monthly rhythms that you have to the five minutes in between meetings or the few minutes that you have at a stoplight every day in your life, you're making decisions in that time. That's building a trellis and your life is growing, Along that framework, your formation is happening along those decisions. And so the question I have this morning is that trellis of your life, is it God oriented? Is it God facing? Is it pointing towards Him? You might be asking a great question. Jamin, what does this have to do with with the Sermon on the Mount? What does it have to do with Matthew 6? Thank you for asking. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says this Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Remember that phrase, beware of practicing your righteousness. That's how chapter six starts. From chapter five to chapter six, the conversation turns, but it doesn't change so important to see this. The conversation that we've been having in chapter five, if you remember, is that Jesus wants to make us deeply righteous people. He wants to make us whole people who look like him. His discipleship is not simply aimed at our heads to produce right answers. The discipleship of Jesus is aimed at our hearts to produce whole people. And in chapter five, he tells us what that looks like. It's God's voice aimed at our hearts. And he gives six examples of what that looks like, but it's six examples to make the same point, that we will be deeply changed He will make us into whole people. There's a righteousness available to us that's even greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not because it's broader, but because it's deeper and it brings a sincerity to our lives. And here's how it happens. You have heard that it was said, but I say, so listen to the voice of Jesus. Whoever has your ear controls your life. And then it's aimed under the surface to the very core of the problems of our life. So he doesn't just wanna talk about uh, our, our the murder in our life. He wants to talk about the anger that's underneath. He doesn't just wanna talk about the adultery in our life. He wants to talk about the lust underneath. He wants to talk about our words matter. He wants to talk about loving our enemies like we saw last week. And so he's gonna make that point six different times in chapter five. And then in chapter six, verse one, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness. The conversation doesn't change. The conversation simply turns. When he says, beware of practicing your righteousness, he's saying this, he starts talking about their religious habits. He starts talking about the righteous God-oriented trellis that already existed as a framework for his original audience, for the people that first heard these voices. And and here's what he's saying. He's saying uh, giving and prayer and fasting. And around these three practices, there's a way to do them and a way not to do them. But I want us to hear his language. The reason we read all 18 verses, he said, when you give and when you pray and when you fast, not if. He's speaking to a people who had daily, weekly, monthly rhythms of righteous practices and including giving, which they did some people every day, included prayer, which happened for a first century Jew three times a day at three different times in the day. Fasting, which was tied to a whole calendar of festivals and feasts that they had. And and just like in chapter five, his list is not exhaustive. He could have talked about Sabbath. He could have talked about scroll reading. Here's the point. He's speaking to a people who already had those practices, who already had time committed to God, who already had a God-facing trellis that was designed to move them toward and orient them around God in his presence. In fact, the word practice, beware of practicing your righteousness. It literally means to make a path. To practice is to clear the road so that change, that righteous change can flow through and run along that path. So it could grow along a trellis that was built around God in his presence. That's who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to that kind of culture because this is how God designed it for the people of God. One of the most formative verses in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, okay? How? How do they get from ears embedded into my very person, into my very heart? How do they get into my life? Partly by getting into our time. Talk about them when you sit at home, it says, and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. That's every part of life you are either sitting or walking or lying down or getting up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your forehead. Write them on the doorframe of your houses and on your gates. Get them into your life, God says. His commands, God's words, fill your life in such a way that even if you tried to forget God and his word, you couldn't because it's tied to your head. And it's tied to your hands and it's written on your house and it's written on your cities. That's God's command to his people. How will your hearts change? Partly how that change will happen is by building a God-facing rhythm and practices upon which that change and that growth happens. That's all over the Old Testament. So the reason why Jesus preaches this sermon and the first people who heard this sermon had these practices in their life is because God had given them to them. God had uh, had framed their life in such a way that their time, the days in their lives would be filled with these kinds of practices. And so he, he gets to this sermon. He gets this part of the sermon. He's talking to a habitual people. And some people, I think often where we get really dismissive of this is we just assume that anything like this is automatically legalistic. And it's not. God gave these kinds of things to his people. It wasn't about legalism. It wasn't about burden, but as a mechanism for his people to wait on and to remember and to commune with the presence of God. Okay, so follow me. He goes from chapter five to chapter six. He teaches on becoming deeply righteous people that by his grace and through his love. And then he gets to their practices. Then he starts talking about the way they spend their time. Uh, He's talking to people who pray and give and fast and observe Sabbath and memorize Torah. And he says, you know, he says, hey, Don't worry about any of that anymore. You don't need it anymore. He gets to these things and he says, no, these things are stifling. These things are legalistic. Just be free to use your time however you want because it doesn't matter. He doesn't say that at all. He says, you will need these practices. The change from chapter five will only work along with these kinds of habits in place. The conversation turns, but it doesn't change. So he says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, not if. His point is part of how the righteous change will happen is by running along a life that has time for God and has made time for God. And he says, here's how to do that. Here's how not to do that. That's what we'll talk about the next three weeks. But before getting into all that, we have to acknowledge a conversation behind the conversation because we are not a culture by and large that is committed to daily righteous habits. We're not. Everything around us invites us into God forgetting and self-sufficient ways of living. And so if you've sat with us these last month and a half and you have heard the appeal from your savior for a deep righteousness that, that doesn't just uproot murder, but it uproots anger, a deep righteousness that doesn't just uproot uh, adultery, but it uproots lust, a, a deep righteousness that makes you love people, even those that are hardest in your life to love. If that's going to happen in your life and in my life, it will not happen apart from time with God, time that we've created in our life to spend with God. So hear it like this. Everything I've said in these first 12 minutes is to get us to see this. We will not become like Jesus without spending time with God. And we will not spend time with God unless we have made time for God. Structure, habit, daily time of prayer and reading and silence with God and church and home group. If the trellis of your life is not built around remembering, waiting on, communing with the presence of God, the vine will never get off the ground. Or... It, will, it won't grow where we as Christians say we desperately want our life to grow. So goodness, goodness, goodness. One of the chief problems that we face right now as a church, at least in this portion of the world, that the greatest threats to the church are always from within, not from without. One of the greatest problems we face is people who claim that God is the most important thing in the world but spend very little time with him in their life. Like friends, I've said this before, this this is not enough. 80 minutes of church on a Sunday is not enough, especially when you consider that, that the average churchgoer now is probably two times a month, not four times a month, maybe like it used to be. So this is not enough, it's essential, it is essential. The Bible would say that if you neglect the gathering, you will drift from the faith. That's Hebrews. One of the things I grieve most about the pandemic is how it's disrupted for so many the habit of gathering with the people of God. One of the things that's so encouraging about the season that we're in right now is seeing a bit of a return of, 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 of people who it landed differently in a lot of different ways, but this is a time for whatever reason where there's a little bit of a recommitment and I'm so grateful for that. And there is grace that covers all of the ways that we've tried to navigate the last you know year and some change, I get that. But this is an essential part of every Christian trellis, and it is not enough. It's not enough. We are not formed and changed by paying attention to God one hour a week, especially when all those other hours are filled with other sermons, and all those other hours are filled with other stories and other voices, and look, everyone is being discipled by someone or something, and one of the greatest challenges that we have now is that we as Christians, and I believe this, Christians genuinely want to become more like Jesus. I think that's true. Most of us see his life, hear stories, encounter him and genuinely want to become more like him, but ignore, at the same time, ignore that much of our time is not orienting our thoughts and our hearts and our loves towards him, but towards other things. Dallas Willard says it in a scathing way in in one of his books. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time to not commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right in the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it reality. To to filter that through our metaphor, we want the vine to grow the right way, but we don't build the trellis. We want our lives to grow toward God and become like Jesus, but we don't build that framework in our lives. This is true for me. And, and as I've thought about it, I think there's two reasons why that happens. There's, I'm sure there's more than two, but I wanna suggest two to you. I think one of the reasons that happens that we kind of we, we have this vision of becoming like Jesus, but we don't put in the, the time to actually spend time with God is we've only been taught to evaluate how we're doing as a Christian through categories of godly and ungodly. And we need another category. We need another question. So we ask about our actions, like, were they sin or were they not sin? That's a really important question. Like, if I asked you, did you do anything ungodly this week, right? The answer is yes. Let me just answer it for us. The answer is yes. And we come to Jesus for grace and forgiveness, and he's kind and eager to cover our sin. He reminds us of his love, right? Uh, or if I asked, did you do anything that honored God this week? The answer is probably yes whether there was kindness or you resisted temptation, praise God. He doesn't love us anymore because of it, but he is honored and it matters and it means that we're growing. And we think like that. And that's a really healthy category to think in. Like anything about my day or my week that was ungodly, sinful, wrong, what honored God, what was righteous. And we we need those categories, but we needed to add another question. We need to add another category, not just consider if anything about our day or week was ungodly, but we need to ask about our day, was it godless? And that's different. Was the day absent of any thoughts of God or any mindfulness of God? Was the day absent of any intentional time with God? Was it godless? And what's so easy, friend, is in this secular world that we're in a hyper-individualized world that peddles a false narrative that is that the free self is the self-sufficient self. In a world where we have access to endless amounts of distraction, it is just so easy to forget what we believe about God, namely that he exists. And he wants to commune with us. And he wants to, like we teach our kids, God wants to talk with us. So remember that we are the people who believe the God with us story. We're the people that believe the true story of the world can be told in, that, in those three words, God with us. We're the people who believe a Trinitarian God out of Trinitarian love created a world that that world would enjoy his love and he was present in that world from the very beginning. Sin enters that world, separates us from his presence and God turns not away from the world, but he moves in closer to the world. He says, I will not uh, abandon this world. I'm gonna stay committed to this world. In fact, I have a plan to rescue this world and that plan culminates in my presence being fully restored on earth. That plan culminates with my presence forever returning to the world. So he covenants with the people to be present with them. Ultimately, he himself comes as Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus lives a perfect life and he ascends to heaven. The spirit of God descends and is present with us even now. I don't understand it all, but I know the Bible teaches he's sustaining us and sanctifying us. And we have in him in part what we'll one day have in full, the Revelation 21 declaration the, the 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 one of the climactic sentences of God's story says in Revelation 21 behold God's dwelling place His presence, he is now among the people. He will dwell with them. He'll make his home with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? Because God's back. He's here. God himself will be with us. The very presence of God, wiping tears away, running death out of his world. And we are part of that God with a story. We believe that that is, that is more true than anything in the world, and the need of the soul and the invitation from God is to be with him because he's with us, his very spirit present with us now. And you and I are living in a world that will give us every reason and every other story and equip you with all the distraction you need to live a God-forgetting, godless life. And without intentional resistance, we will be the people who in our creeds say God with us, but with our days say, I can live without him. And you can't, I can't. It's not enough to simply ask about our days, what sins did I commit or not commit? We also need to ask, did I live today like God exists or did I live like I and this is all there is? I think another reason we neglect time with God is that we underestimate, please hear me. We underestimate how much we are actually changed by small repeated actions. How, we underestimate how much our formation, you understand what I mean by that? We're all, we're all clay, we're all being formed and, 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 and we're all being formed and shaped by our environment and our choices and our beliefs and all that. And, and we underestimate how much of that formation is a result of the actions that we repeat and the actions that we repeat most. If you've paid any attention to the data from the last few decades on, on how our habits affect us, it's saying this very thing. It's telling us a huge part of what forms us is repeated action. There's a guy named Justin Early. He wrote a book called Common Rule, which is excellent. In fact, if you just want a very immediate practical step on how to spend more time with God and to take these truths and to learn to live them out, you can start with that book. It's, it's really, really, really excellent. In that book, he cites a study from Duke University that says 40% of what you and I do in any given day is determined not by choice, but by habit. 40%. It's small repeated action that we aren't even deciding to do, but we have subconsciously committed to because at some point we just repeated it and repeated it and repeated it to where it becomes part of who we are. And those repeated actions over time affect who we're becoming. Like if you just take as an example, the statistics coming out around social media use, a regulated occasional relationship to social media is great. So for the record, I don't think Instagram is the devil. I think uh, it has benefit. I think it can be good. But what we know is habitual, unregulated social media use contributes to anxiety. In fact, at least among teenagers and those in their 20s, there's a direct relationship between amounts of social media use and levels of anxiety. And so just what you have is you have the habit, then you have the person the habit is making you. Tons of social media use, small repeated action forms anxious people because we are formed by and change through small repeated action over time. It's a huge part of what makes us us. It's like the relationship between the body and food. I have had a few really amazing meals in my life. Almost all of them were meals that someone else paid for, which made the food taste even better. <laughs> I have had an unforgettable filet. I have had the private chef meal. I have had a plate of food that looks so good. I took a picture of it, which is weird. And I sent it in a group text to my friends for the sole purpose of making them jealous that they weren't eating what I was eating, right? I've had those meals, not many, but, but I've had them. But while those meals make for great stories, those meals are not the meals that have kept me alive. It's not the memorable meals that have kept me alive. It's the daily ones. My health for better or for worse, has been determined by the ordinary food I eat every day. If I depended on unforgettable filets and private chefs for food, I would eventually starve to death as a poor man. Your physical health is not determined by the occasional feast. Your physical health is determined by your daily diet. And hear me, character is the same. Formation is the same. It is not the occasional moments. It is not the occasional activities that most shape who you are. It's the daily ones. It's the repeated ones. If we think back to Deuteronomy 6, why does God command what he commands in Deuteronomy 6? Because he knows this to be true. He knows how we're formed. He knows how he's wired us. And so he says, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love God with all your heart and love God with all your mind and love God with all your strength. My commandments, my character, get it into your heart. How? Partly by getting it into your day. The ordinary repeated moments of the day filled with these truths. When you sit, when you walk, tie them around your head Tie them around your hands, write them on your house, write them on your city, make them your daily diet. Make them your daily, small actions over and again that become habits and trellis that change, runs along. And without it, it just never gets off the ground because it's not the actions we intend to do that change us. It's the ones we repeat that change us. It's the ones that we're committed to over and over that that form us. And what some of us need to consider and confess, myself included, is that we tend to treat time with God like special meals and think it's enough, and it's not. It's the daily, repeated, habitual food that affects who we're becoming. Like, friends, there's a vision in the Bible. There's a picture of life presented in the Bible, and every single time I read about it or hear about it, it captures my attention, and it captures something of what I most long to become. It's the Jeremiah 17 vision. It says this, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be, here's the vision. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Sign me up. Sign, to, to be a person so firmly planted, that no fear of the heat, no worry of drought. Praise God for that life. Like I have, spent, I have spent enough years feeling like the pile of leaves and twigs blown around by the slightest breeze, right? I don't want that anymore. Sign me up to be the tree planted by the water, a life of fruitfulness despite circumstances. Oh, that the, that the testimony about me at the end of my life would be that he was steady and he stood firm and he had a character about him that circumstances couldn't shake. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to be, look, everyone wants to be an oak. What I wish, what I wish I would have paid more attention to earlier in life is this truth. It won't happen apart from daily time with God over a long period of time because roots grow slowly. It requires, as Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction. It's why Peterson, who would also, also say one of the greatest threats towards us becoming who God wants us to be is our own impatience. Everyone wants to be an oak. Friend, hear me. Few people have the patience for the work of deep roots. Few people have the patience for the repeated, daily righteous action that sends roots into the soil. Like if I could go back, if I could go back 15 years ago and say anything to Jamin, I would say, Jamin, buy stock and apple. As much, <laughs> as much as you can afford. And I would also say, <laughs> don't neglect time with God, don't neglect it. Jamin, I know that you know it's important, but you think knowing it's important is enough because you're young and naive. To be clear, I'm, I'm still those things but you think knowing it is enough is important and it's not enough to know it's important, build a trellis, Jamin. Build, commit to tying his gospel and his truth around your hands and around your head and write it into your very life. Pray, read, listen to God. Don't just try and glean off the time other people spend with God. You meet with him and meet with him every day, feel your time with it. Because Jamin, the habits developing now, the trellis you're building now is what your life will lean on a year from now and five years from now and 10 years from now and 15 years from now. And what you will most need to be able to lean on is time with God. And if that's not there, then nothing else will matter. Nothing else will matter. I feel that as a pastor, I've told you, I'll say it again. I don't wanna be a travel agent preacher, I don't. I don't want to sell trips to places I've never been. I don't want to tell you church to taste and see that the Lord is good and never myself eat and drink of his goodness and mercy. No, no, no. I want to be the tree planted by streams of water whose roots are growing towards the spring. And I have got a long way to go to get there. And I will not get there apart from a daily diet of time with God, a righteous trellis built towards God. I need that. And so do you. Pay attention to where our lives are godless. Don't underestimate the role small, repeated actions play in shaping who we are. How do we keep from those things? By building the trellis. Let me give you an example of what this could look like. We showed this, we've got got practices that have marked our entire series in the Sermon on the Mount. We showed this back in September when we started the series. Uh, And I thought back then that we would get to it in November, and it's April. But here it is it's not complete. It doesn't include what this doesn't include is it doesn't include corporate time. It doesn't include this right here, which is important. It doesn't include the time in home group or community, which is important, but it's a start. And it's just morning prayer, evening silence, two daily practices, Wednesday fast, one weekly practice. This is an example of what a trellis could look like if you take the time to build it. My prayer is that this would be helpful, especially for those who've never done anything like this and and you wanna know where to start. We have a guide on our website under our resources tab that, that will walk you through how to begin doing this. But it's daily, weekly rhythms of spending time with God. Morning prayer, before I do anything else, I'm going to spend a few minutes talking to God. And maybe you're in a season of life where you have margin in your life to spend the first 30 minutes in prayer or the first hour in prayer, praise God. Maybe realistically, you only have about three minutes before one of your kids starts throwing Cheerios at you, right? Whatever moments you have, spend the first ones talking to God. Not sure how to do that. The good news is Jesus gives us a prayer to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We'll walk through the way Jesus teaches us to pray in, in two weeks. Evening silence. This isn't complicated. It just means in a noisy world, I'm gonna end the day sitting in silence, remembering that God is with us. Maybe I meditate on a verse or I'm just still and I know that God is God. Wednesday fast, one day a week, I'm gonna fast from a meal or a few meals as a way to remember that as hungry as my body is for food, my life needs God. As hungry as I am for food, the world that I'm living in is famished for God. Again, we have a guide online to help you start doing this. Let me say this, if I could contend for anything and then we'll be done. If I could contend for anything, it would be to see this not just as, as things to do, not just as something to commit to in your life, but to see it as actually a better way to live, a better way to live. Like, like you me, you are already doing something during these times. And what you're doing during these times are making you who you are, are forming you into who you are. Like you already do something right when you wake up. You already do something every evening right before bed and whatever it is, it's shaping you. If the first thing you do every morning is grab your phone and check email, that starts your day off with you thinking of yourself first and foremost as a worker. That starts your day off with you thinking first and foremost as an employee or an employer, first and foremost as someone who has things to accomplish in the day. And all that might be true about you, how much better to start your day in prayer and remember first and foremost, you're a child of God. How much better to start believing and remembering that you're redeemed and you're loved. And there's someone who's not scrutinizing your actions all day long, but someone who knows your needs and your troubles and your worries. And he's the God of the universe who actually delights in spending time with you. And he's not waiting at the beginning of the day to see what tasks you will crush that day. He just loves you. He just loves you. He just wants to spend time with you. He just wants to talk to you. And what would it do to who you're becoming if prayer with God is how you started every day for the rest of your life? Or if the last thing you do in the evening, typically, is consume information or just consume entertainment, like filling your head and your heart with stuff, with news, with scrolling. And and usually the end of the day for many of us is the time of day when we reflect on the failures of the day or the time of day when we consider what we wish we could do again or consider all that was left undone. And it's in that weight of kind of unaccomplished things. It's in that weight of of maybe failures that we escape from that into the mindless numbing, or maybe we make resolutions about all we're gonna do different the next day and guilt and shame make for a really awful night's sleep. What if instead, every day before you slept, you sat in silence and meditated on Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you let that be the final word over your day and you said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What failure can match that? Like what task left undone? What sin returned to can compete with the unrelenting, irrevocable, shame-defeating grace of God in Jesus our Lord, who loved you so much he shed his blood for you so that he can declare about you there is no condemnation for you forever and always. Do you see why this is so important? Time with God, it, It reminds us who we are, what is most true about us and the grace that we live in. It reminds us of the story that we belong to and building that kind of rhythm into your life and that structure in your life. Over time, roots grow deeper. And over time, the change we most want will grow along the trellis in our life that is filled with time that we have made with God. You cannot become like Jesus without spending time with God. And you will not spend time with God unless you have made time for God. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. What I'm, uh, I don't know, Lord, what, what you have it as front of my mind right now is the fact that for a lot of us, maybe we are uh, in a season that is filled with stress and what this could feel like is another list of things that we haven't been doing. I pray against that, God. I pray against that. I pray that what it would come across as, God, what it would communicate as, what we would see from your heart is inviting us into rest, inviting us into a way of living where we are rhythmically and regularly reminded that we're yours, God, that you love us, that we're not defined by the failures of the day or the success of the day, God, but that we have been invited to live lives, to live the hours that you've given us, like we actually believe that you're here with us and you wanna be with us. And that where all this is moving, where all this is heading, God is perfect. Union of heaven and earth and the unfiltered enjoyment of your presence for all of eternity. So would you help us God be faithful, there's so much of this that there's just, there's just nothing romantic about it. There's so much of this, there's nothing easy about it, Lord. So would you give us just a courage? Would you give us that kind of a daily dream that what we can be a part of is sending roots deep into the soil, that we might be present with you in a way that makes us more like Jesus? Help us. We need you. Amen.